Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. It's really understanding the use cases. It's understanding the details, what drives the business outcome. You know, these people are now going to buy your your service or your, or your product. What is really going to happen to them by doing that? And when you're able to tie those things together, you make probably the strongest arguments and you're able to make it resonate with the customer in a way that the other competitors are, are not able to do. I think it is sweating the details. And, and I think, you know, understanding that value prop is, is probably one of the most important details that you can, can really learn when, when selling. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion, and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change, or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hirefall what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hirefall.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefall.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Hello and welcome to the On Target podcast. Today I'm talking with a man with a pedigreed career, having worked for multiple heavy hitting companies such as Scale AI, Twilio, Cisco and Oracle. Currently a partner at New View Capital, Chaitan Chowdhury has helped to establish sales teams, drive revenue across international markets and establish go-to-market strategies for numerous companies all over the world. Really excited to hear more about his pragmatic approach to leadership and how his executive experience helps global organizations to attain peak levels of performance. Not to mention that we also used to work together, so this should be fun. Chayton, it's great to have you on. Thank you, Alex, for having me on. Absolutely. Now you'll know that salespeople need an elevator pitch and you pitch your company day in, day out, or you certainly pitch to other companies or hear pitches from some of the potential portfolio companies. So if you had to give an elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, How would you introduce yourself? Yeah, I would introduce myself as a technologist that turned sales professional that has turned distribution leader. And I think that's pretty much been the story of my career the entire time. Someone that believes in sweating the details and building those routes to market to make an efficient sales process. And so I am a both a qualitative and quantitative leader as I see it. Simple but effective, eh? Let's unpack your story a bit more, Chayton. I'd, I'd love to learn more about your story, both personal and professional. Be great to just highlight some of your, your biggest lessons, biggest learnings and highlights. If I start at the beginning, actually my degree is, is in computer science. And I first started out my career at Cisco in the late 90s writing network utilization tools. I bring that up not because it's, it's terribly relevant to the rest of my career, but I think it gave me a foundation that's rooted in technology and understanding complex subjects. And so subsequently from there, I think that my superpower over the last several years has been intertwining sort of my technical selling ability into the sales processes. And so you see that at Oracle, 
when I go in the early days and I'm an inside sales rep, I'm really successful because I understand the concepts of a database. I understand the concepts of the application server. You see that again when I get to Cisco and I'm able to understand the channel market, the, the sales motion, but also under the underlying technologies, the routing and switching that I was selling. And then that uh, propels me right into Twilio where because of my computer science background, I was able to play with the API at very early stages of, of Twilio, post-Series B. There were only 50 or 60 employees at the time and you know, getting a phone to ring was magical. And I was able to play around and say, like, this is amazing. And really that kind of led me into everything else subsequently that I've done from there. I've kind of just rooted it in technology and, and understanding complex subjects and being able to articulate that value throughout my sales career. It sounds like you've you've always sweated the details. You you spent a lot of time from what I heard there, really trying to become a master of the the tool, the product service solution that you're offering or representing. And when I reflect over my own career, I could definitely attest to the fact that that's always been a staple part of, of my success. When you think of building and scaling sustainable sales teams, how important do you feel that enablement around the technology and the product is to actually build a team that can be effective out there in the field? You know, I, I think it's a really great question. And if you think about the deals that you've done over the course of your career, the deals that you probably feel the most proud about is when that you had this connection with this customer and you were able to get them to see the vision of the product that you were selling. And oftentimes, I think that that is really occurs when you understand the value proposition of the product that you're selling. And if you unpack what does that really mean, it is sweating the details like you described. It's actually going through and understanding why a developer API is going to be applicable to that developer building the next generation tool. Or you know, if it's selling a database or selling switching and routing, it's really understanding the use cases. It's understanding the details, what drives the business outcome. You know, these people are now going to buy your, your service or your, or your product. What is really going to happen to them by doing that? And when you're able to tie those things together, you make probably the strongest arguments and you're able to make it resonate with the customer in a way that the other competitors are, are not able to do. I think it is sweating the details. And, and I think, you know, understanding that value prop is, is probably the, one of the most important details that you can, can really learn when, when selling. So, I mean, if we zoom this out and, and, and have our sales leadership hats on here, you know, one of the key things is then how do you really drive that type of mentality at scale, right? If you've got a team of 20, 50, 100 sellers, and you really want to get everyone comfortable around the importance of uh, almost being a technical seller and not solely focusing on the commercial mindset. Have you had any playbooks or tactics or approaches that you've seen that have been successful at really conditioning the team to be focused around that technical part of the job? I think there are three things that you have to, to do. The first is cultural, and I think that's the most important piece. And so instilling the culture within the team of being a solution seller being someone that can actually articulate value and be very consultative in their sale is a pretty critical component that you need to instill within the team. Now, that can take forms of making sure people are going through and certifying their pitches. It could be you know, writing and, and building uh, value prop docs to be able to go out and, and make sure they can articulate that value correctly. But it's, it's a very important aspect that you have to get right culturally. I think the second piece that people need to do tactically is they really need to spend a little bit more time on enablement. 
So the sales enablement component of, of your sales team, when you're doing this at scale, you need to make sure that everybody is singing from the same playbook or the same songbook. And you need to be able to make sure that the enablement is at a level of detail that is commensurate to where you want the team to be. It cannot be surface level, just give me your pitch. Like it's got to go deeper into use case and value prop and business outcome and really what the mentality of the ICP is. And when you get to that level of detail and the enablement, usually this starts to percolate up into the way that you sell. And then I think lastly, it's really just the operational discipline around how you actually drive a team. So when you're driving a team, you know, oftentimes when you get people to stand and deliver like they would do in a sales meeting, you get to probe and ask more questions that really forces them to think about the value prop, really think about the details of the customer, really think about the outcomes they're trying to drive and not be very surface level. And people sometimes would shy away, but uh, of kind of really pressure testing it inside these teams, but oftentimes the best sales teams, when they have that leader that really is pressure testing it, it starts to translate into a, a very technical, solution-oriented, consultative sales team versus the teams that are very transactional. I love those three. And and on that point of, of pressure testing, something that you know I'd been experimenting with, with my team that's had great success is just uh, off the back of uh, sales enablement is actually doing role plays for things such as demos, right? And trying to certify the proficiency of your team actually being able to carry both a technical message, but also relaying some of the core tenets of things that a rep has understood through their discovery and making sure that they continue to tie back the technical added value of the service or solution also into the business benefits that they might have unpacked during a discovery meeting. So again, a lot of this comes back to that sweating the detail, but also taking enablement programs to the next level to make sure, to your point, that we're pressure testing these things as well. We've spoken a bit about enablement and, and talent uh, chain, and I'd love to start to unpack your perspective around what makes great salespeople, what makes great sales leaders. We'll start with the salespeople themselves, first of all. Just talk to us about some of the characteristics that stand out to you when you think of great salespeople. I think we talked a little bit about it here already. You know, great salespeople do sweat the details. They're very disciplined. What I have found oftentimes is it's the sales leader or the salesperson that has a bit of a chip on their shoulder. They have something to prove. They really want to strive for excellence. They want to get to the next level. If you can sense that in an individual, plus you can also see that they're willing to take feedback, take direction, and they're willing to kind of follow the process that you have set forth. Usually those are the salespeople that you see at club. Usually those are the salespeople that you're seeing up at the end of the year and getting the, the sales award. And so those individuals, I think it's the grit, it's the, the chip on your shoulder, willing to wanting to, to go out and prove something and really go out after something with the combination of, of the details, the operational details that that you described earlier. It's that that intersection that I oftentimes find uh, really great salespeople. It's not that they have a technical background and that they really understand the developer very well. It's really those two first two things that can train someone to be a phenomenal seller because those are the individuals that will really connect with their customers in a way that most people do not. And they won't, they'll, they'll treat them much more of, of 
a longer relationship than a transaction. And how can sales leaders test for some of this stuff, right? I think about uh, this point on attention to detail and some of the intrinsic things that you've just touched on there. How can a sales leader start to test for that and unpack that during an interview process to make sure that actually they're looking at a candidate that, that fulfills that type of criteria? The salespeople and sales leaders, I, I've recently have been working with our portfolio companies on how to hire a CRO. And I think this uh, is applicable to hiring a CRO as well. The way that you want to test is, is really in a couple dimensions. So there is very, very common to have, hey, show me your 30, 60, 90 day plan. Come up with a 30, 60, 90 day plan and um, present it to me. And they will oftentimes come in and, and present that that plan to you. And you're like, oh, okay, the guy's going to build pipeline. He's going to do, you know, he's going to make 150 phone calls, 150 emails. He kind of has broken it down. And that's a very common thing for sales interview process to happen. The next thing is that you oftentimes see is, hey, present something to us. Present your pitch, your company is very common in a sales uh, interview process. I like to take that presentation a little bit further to test this detail orientation, which is I like to ask them to teach me something in a presentation, but teach me something that's technical. That doesn't matter whether it's baking cookies or whether it's fixing a carburetor or whether it's you know showing me technically how to be a better golfer, whatever it is, show me something that's technical and break it down for me and teach me how to do that. Because when you're trying to teach someone you're sweating the details. Every little thing matters. If you're baking cookies, you're not going to forget to teach them that they need to put some sugar in that mix. If it's a, sw a golf swing, it's the fundamentals of a golf swing are very different. And so that presentation, I think, is very critical. And then the last and the most important thing that I have found in interviewing good salespeople is that I will give them a small written sample. I will tell them, it's the last day of the quarter. You are trying to write an email to the CFO or the CEO to convince them that they should buy your product. Here's the discount. Here's the dollar amounts. Here are the people that you're talking through. I'll give them a little scenario, a written prompt, and I'll tell them, write me an email. That email can be three paragraphs, three lines, or three pages. Doesn't matter. But you write me a paragraph that is demonstrating to me in written form why I should buy your product given this writing prompt. I have found that that has been the, the greatest predictor of whether a good salesperson or not. Because if you're able to articulate value and a business outcome in written prose form, that shows a level of organization and detail that most salespeople are not doing. And it's those sellers that I often want to bring along with me to the companies that I go and work with. Because I'm like, that guy knows how to do it. He knows how at the last day of the quarter, how to write a, a persuasive email to the CEO. I know that that person is going to do the work and they're going to use the, the right level of detail to drive that transaction. These are really interesting tactical plays. You could probably tell from my reaction. I, I loved the teach me something. Uh, I've not actually heard someone come out with that before, but um, the, the thought behind that just makes so much sense, right? The attention to detail, the way that you've got to construct and actually articulate what it is that you're sharing when you're attempting to teach someone something. That's a fantastic one. And I think one that many sales leaders should absolutely take away from. I did mention that I'd love to also get your perspective around sales leadership. And of course, there's different tiers to that. You've spoken about CROs and of course, you've got frontline managers and, and everything in between. 
but I'd love for you to unpack for us some of the the core staple ingredients of high potential sales leaders. What what are the first things that come to mind for you? I like to break sales leaders into two buckets. There are sales leaders that are very good at pipeline inspection, hiring a team, running a forecast call, uh, very traditional sort of sales individuals. And based on the maturity of your company, you need those individuals. So you oftentimes need someone to just set up the basic sales process, how to forecast, how to run and qualify opportunities, how to actually understand how to qualify a deal. These are the, the sales basics. And those are traditional sales leaders. Typically, companies that are just getting started, let's say sub 20, 30 million in sales, they need sales leaders. If you're 30 million and beyond and you're trying to get to 300 million, let's say, you're going to start to approach where you need more of what I would call a distribution leader. And a distribution leader is someone that understands a route to market. They understand how to allocate capital within that route to market to drive an efficient sales process. So there are very different sort of lens on how they think about go to market. They're looking at the total addressable market and they're saying, all right, well, the best way to attack our SMB strategy is through a channel partner. Our best way to attack a mid-market, all right, is to have a direct sellers. Okay, well, in the enterprise, you know, it might be going through two or three large SIs, or maybe the enterprise market, we really need to do a, a named account model. And we really need to have a very different sales motion. These are distribution leaders that are thinking more broadly than just a sales leader. And so those are the two sort of archetypes per se. Now, both archetypes are extremely important. And depending on the maturity of the company, I think you can lean on one versus the other. But those are the type of leaders that I like to think about when I'm advising a portfolio company on either hire to hire a distribution leader or a sales leader. I kind of make them think about it in those two, those two buckets. Really fascinating. I, as I listen to that, a, a lot of that really tells me about the way that they think and in a way their their operational rigor. What I still love to get from you is when you look at the DNA and the characteristics of that leader that's in front of you, are there particular traits that you're looking for? Are there particular, again, characteristics that you're looking out for when you're actually in front of that person? Is it, you know, emotional intelligence? Is there empathy? Whatever it might be, I'd love to just hear who is that person at their core? Those two that you just mentioned are definitely extremely important. Emotional intelligence, being an empathetic leader, is these are things that are, are pretty critical. At the end of the day, I think it comes down and boils down to one characteristic that I like, and it's grit or passion. You will find that the folks that are have both the emotional intelligence and the empathy that you want, but minus the grit, ugh, like still doesn't quite fit within the organization. But when those all those things sort of line up and they've got a level of humility with them and they've got a level of just the way that they carry themselves as a leader, you know, having a little bit of, of, of humbleness to it, I think those are these are the things that I always look for. If they're really arrogant and they've got a chip on their shoulder, they probably are not empathetic and they're not really got emotional intelligence. So you kind of, you know, you want to let those guys slide. And the folks that do line up with that humility and, and empathy but still have a lot of grit and want to make something happen that are leaning forward. Or as one boss used to tell me, are you standing on the balls of your feet or on the heels of your feet? And if if you can tell that they're on the balls of their feet, 
then yeah, those are the people that are leaning in and we want to go after those individuals. I see a level of synergy in uh, certain aspects of the traits that you look out for in a seller and a leader, this pr uh, premise of really having a strong why, something that's that's driving that person to want to go out there and achieve in some way. I noted your point around the the chip on the shoulder and the potential contradiction with being empathetic. I, I, I would actually say that I feel like there's two types of chips on a shoulder, right? You can have one that I would describe as healthy in a way, which is where you've got something that you want to prove, whether it's to yourself or to the world, because that can actually be quite a powerful form of a motivation or some form of drive, depending on what that chip is and, and, and how it's helping you. And then there's unhealthy ones, right? Ones that, uh, as you say, do conflict in some way with being empathetic or actually cannibalize that person's ability to go out there and be successful. So an interesting broader topic slash uh, debate to be had. There's a unique perspective which you're going to have, Chayton, based on your time uh, working as an operator and now being in the VC world and the way that you're able to inspect and analyze sellers, leaders, uh, and go-to-market functions. I'd love to learn from you more about some of the core tenants or core ingredients that you feel should be stapled to really any go-to-market plan. Are there specific tenants or principles that you feel any thriving GTM plan should absolutely include? It's not necessarily a fundamental tenant. I think they are aspects or dimensions to a good go-to-market plan. And I think that there are probably five, maybe six that I can think of right off the top of my head that I, I really think about when I'm coaching CROs or I'm coaching founders about how to think about their go-to-market. First, it's defining your sales motion. What is your sales motion? Is it a PLG motion plus enterprise is just enterprise sales. Is it a channel sale? Like you have to define that. The next is understanding in, uh, your market. So how do you segment your market that you're going after? And when, once you do segment that market, you know, enterprise mid-market and SMB, really understanding what the coverage model is against that market and how are you going to cover that segment of the market that you're going after. Once you've done that, it's building a sales productivity model, understanding how fast do you have to hire? How long is it going to take to ramp? What's the model in which that you're seeing where people are going to attain quota? Then after you, you've got this kind of model, you've got this plan, you've got these dimensions. Now we're trying to fine tune. Now we're saying, okay, can I use sales compensation as a lever? So defining a really good sales comp plan to drive the efficiency of the sales process, building and, and making sure enablement is really strong and understanding what that plays into your model. So essentially your sales PL is a better way to think about it. It's how do you allocate capital now within your own budget, within your own functions of your group of sales to drive these behaviors and actually make the model start producing. And lastly, it's probably just sitting down and really understanding the operational discipline that forces everyone to be in a, a certain heartbeat of the organization. So you're operating cadences and rhythms. That's everything from your forecast meeting down to your QBR meeting schedule to your pipeline inspection meetings. Like these are really important aspects of your sales model or your sales plan. People forget, they're like, oh yeah, of course we have a forecast meeting. Well, it's what you're doing in the forecast meeting. How are you collecting the data in the forecast meeting? How accurate are your sellers rolling up that forecast to their frontline managers to then getting to you? Because you're playing operator. 
right? And then you, we all played that game operator where you whisper in someone's ear and it goes around the table and what originally you said was changed. That happens in a forecast too. And so you want to make sure that these disciplined elements are actually really ingrained into the sales plan in order to get the right outcomes. A lot of this still seems to come back to that sweating the detail, which is a big takeaway from me for this conversation. At, at every layer and in every piece that you component that you've spoken about, it's always about getting to that layer two, layer three of understanding, really fleshing these things out and being thoughtful at every single step. As you think through everything that you just covered, those six points, are there any common mistakes, common areas where you tend to see that sales leaders tend to fall short on that they should keep an eye out for? The biggest area that I think that sales leaders fall short on is in their yearly yearly planning process. There's a top-down number that comes back from the CEO or from court. We need to hit 200 million in sales. And then they try to do a bottoms up forecast and they do a bottoms up and they're like, we're at 120. And there's a gap of that 80 million. And understanding how to articulate that gap, how to actually make sense of that gap. Is it true gap or not? Is the field being too conservative and the corporate CFO, CEO being too aggressive? Where does that intersection happen? And really getting a sense, again, back to your point earlier, it's like getting into the details and really understanding how that process works for your yearly planning cycle. Because your yearly planning cycle is the the one place that is going to help you govern the team for the year. Because as good salespeople, we know that if I give you a million dollar quota, you're going to break that down into how many emails I have to send, how many phone calls I have to have, how many opportunities I have to have, how many meetings I need to have in order to drive to that million dollar quota. And so really understanding those plans and being able to to articulate the details of those plans and also pressure test or have sensitivity analysis on those plans of being able to dial up or, or dial back the risk versus conservatism and really getting that down to a science will help you govern more effectively for the year. And I think that those are the areas that are the most difficult for salespeople, including myself. I, I'm not saying that I can do this well either. It's like one of those things that it's a constant learning battle. But those are the type of things that from our former old boss, George, who I would see those are the struggles that a good sales leader always uh, is trying to figure out. Before shifting gears on topic, Jayton, I'd, I'd be remiss not to get your perspective on being a data-driven leader. This is something that we've spoken about offline, and I know you're you're very, very bullish on in a, in a, a very fascinating way. I'd love for you to just talk a bit more about what it takes to really become a data-driven leader in everything that you do and why you feel that that is so important as uh, sales leaders continue to evolve their careers. Yeah, if we took a step back, we just look at the the macro world that we live in today. You know, just selling a seat license today as a software seller is uh, still apparent, but it's it's getting less and less so because what's happening here is as compute power has come down in cost and it's even cheaper today to start a company and the level of things you can do now in the cloud are actually pretty complex and the solutions that developers and people are building are even more complex with like consumption-based models where it's either whether it's per minute or per sms 
or per API call, the different sort of ways to go to market are increasing in complexity. I think what has happened here is that the sellers have not kept pace oftentimes with the buyers. The buyers are actually quite sophisticated now in their approach. They understand the tooling and infrastructure oftentimes equally as well as the seller. With a PLG motion, they may have even used the tool more than the seller has. The seller may have not, you know, if you're selling a developer tool, they've maybe never even used the tool. And so what does that really mean? I think that translates to really having to be more solution-oriented and understanding the actual value that you're bringing. And the only way to do that is through data in today's world. And you really do have to marry when you're selling, you know, you have to marry the ability to come to you as the, the, the buyer and say, look, I'm going to reduce your cost by X percent, or I'm going to increase your productivity by Y percent. And here's the reasons why I'm going to do that. At a very fundamental level, if you don't really understand those data elements, it's really hard to actually sell to today's buyer. Now, we extrapolate that even further as a leader. What does that mean? To me as the CRO, if I'm asking my sellers to be more sophisticated in their approach to selling, I equally as a leader and a manager need to be as data-driven because I got to create that culture in which that data is really important. So I like to make sure that I, I, when I coach CEOs or CROs is that we are marrying both the qualitative and the quantitative data elements at all times. So if we talk about a segment, we talk about what's the goal of the segment, what's the quota of the segment, what's the attainment of the segment, where do we need to go, what's the gap? Like these are data elements that we need to just instill in ourselves and always repeat it to ourselves to make sure that we're driving. But we also need to not forget about what are the comments that we're hearing that are, are less quantitative and more qualitative in their approach? Because I think the two of those things actually make us better sales leaders or better distribution leaders because there are things that you just can't see in the numbers. And so I try to focus in on looking at the trend lines. I try to focus in on understanding the cohort data and looking for patterns. And then I usually will go back and see if I see a pattern I'll go back and try my best to now validate that with what I'm hearing in the street by the sellers. Are you hearing the same thing? I see this in the, the usage number. I see this in the, in the renewal number. I see this in the churn number. But is this really true? And you want to get those anecdotes to help support uh, those trend lines. Without that, it's really difficult as a leader in today's market. Because like I said, the buyers are just really quite advanced relative to where they were 10 or 15 years ago. They're just much more sophisticated. So you need to take much more of a, a data-driven approach when selling and managing teams at scale. That was very comprehensive and I think a great segue into really looking to unpack a bit more about the way that you structure your own week and your own day. Uh, actually, Che, and I'd love to get a, a perspective on both when you were an operator and a, and a sales leader, what a typical week or day in the life look like for you and how that's now evolved uh, being a partner at a VC. Just talk to us a bit about uh, what your week used to look like and how things have evolved for you. I had a executive coach while I was at Twilio. And one of the things that they taught me that I still follow to this day is an acronym called STAB. 
And it uh, stands for Strategic Time Allocation Budget. And just as, uh, as you would go through and allocate a budget monetarily with money, you've got to do that with your time. I follow this process whereby I will, my week, whether I was an operator or whether I'm today as an investor, I will actually block out time for certain subjects or certain ongoing activities. So when I was an operator, I was always recruiting and trying to find new salespeople. It was constant battle. So I would always allocate Tuesday mornings from 8 a.m. till noon to leave for interviews. And if I didn't have an interview during that time, I would fill it with other things, but I would only fill it with other things 48 hours in advance. So on Sunday, if I knew that there was no no meetings, I would either myself or tell my admin, like you can use that block of time for something else. And I would do the same thing for writing and digesting data. So I would allocate right after our forecast calls that we, you and I participated oftentimes, I would allocate Friday afternoon from 2.30 to 4.30 to sit down and run through the forecast and all of the pipeline and all of the data from that last week. What changed from last week? And I would create these blocks of time. They were kind of like my sacred time zones. They were strategic time that I wanted to use in order to make myself better as a leader. And I do that today in my uh, venture firm. Like there, as an investor, it's very academic in some places where I have to do a lot of deep research, primary research of understanding a, a particular area. And so you have to spend a lot of time reading and writing about that area. And so I will today, you know, block off two, three hours, maybe sometimes longer, sometimes a whole day of that's the only thing I'm going to do that day. What I think we have in today's market, in today's world, working world, is a little bit of the Instagram feeling where you're watching these three second videos of something and then you move on. And that sort of ADD mentality, which I fall into, make it very difficult to get that sort of really comprehensive understanding of something, getting to the level of detail that we've been talking about in this this interview. It's really understanding those details. You need to spend time doing that. That unfortunately doesn't come in 30-second Instagram sound bites. You have to really unpack things in order to get there. And so that's how I kind of think about my week. And I've organized it differently over the years, but I follow that framework of, of staff. I love the framework. The, the premise of the value of time cannot be overstated, right? It's um, of incredible, incredible value. There's a, there's a really interesting article written by Mike Spicer, who leads Sutter Hill Ventures, uh, another very successful VC fund. Uh, I believe he titled it something like the, the time value of time. And he just talks about the diminishing returns of time over the years, because ultimately, as you get older, typically people have slightly less energy and and vigor and some of the other things that don't necessarily come over an extended period of time. And so it's very, very important to maximize every hour, uh, be acutely aware of the value of every single second and really maximize that early and often. And uh, to your point, knowing that actually you had a coach working with you on these types of things really demonstrates the level of depth and detail you can go into to make sure that you're optimizing your day and your week. So certainly something that people should look into and and also check out that article that I mentioned. On the premise of time, Chayton, have you seen any 
particular time saps that certainly for sales leaders, you've seen that they have in a typical week, which you just caution them to be mindful of or to avoid to really get better control of their calendar? There are probably a couple of time sucks. Uh, you know, we don't see this as much because of, of COVID now where people were coming in. I always fell prey to this. You know, I was on the sales floor and salespeople are, are gregarious. They're funny. They're enjoyable to be around. Oftentimes it felt like even like a, a little bit of a club, you know, with the same type of people around. And so I would end up realizing that I just spent the last two, three hours bullshitting with with other AEs, talking to my SE about nonsense and having fun and having a good time and not doing the work that I needed to do, which was, you know what, you got to make the send the emails, you got to pound the phones, you got to really do the things that you needed to do instead of talking about the around the water cooler about whatever last night's game, which oftentimes can be difficult. The other thing that I found that uh, is a very much a time suck is really spending not enough time doing your homework, qualifying deals out quickly. You know, you go into a call and you qualify it and you're like, ah, there's something there. And then you hold on to it. And the next thing you know, you've got 10 of these deals that you're kind of something there. I'm not sure. And one is fine, but 10 is not. And 10 is now it's occupying space in your mind those 10 deals, and you're not really focusing on the one or two deals that we need to focus in on within a given quarter. I oftentimes see salespeople, and sometimes, again, myself, allowing deals to persist within the pipeline much longer than they should because they don't want to really show that they don't have pipeline. And so they kind of keep that around, and it just, again, occupies space, and and we should probably just qualify it out and move it out out, out of the pipeline. That emotional burden piece is... uh... Often uh, there's not enough time spent on actually how emotively sometimes that's a huge drain on sellers and sales leaders. They spend so, so much time actually being uh, concerned and obsessed with trying to keep some of these deals alive. And actually it cannibalizes an incredible amount of time when you just add up the mind space, the walking around the office, asking questions, asking for advice, toying with it in your mind when all of that same effort and energy and time could be better invested to your point, actually doing revenue generating activities that move the needle. So definitely one for us all to be more acutely aware of. How do you stay healthy and energized throughout the working week chain? You know, you've been doing this for a long time, long extensive run at Twilio. You're still working at a high pace from what I can tell. You know, how do you keep yourself going and energized just on a personal front? I'm a very early riser for me personally. So I get up uh, around 4.40 in the morning, every morning, and then I go work out at 5 a.m. typically. Not every day, but I do work out several times a week. That kind of helps keep things going. The days that I'm not working, I usually use that time between 5 a.m. and 6.30 to do my thinking. I'm a better thinker in the morning than I am in the evening. So that's the time that I'm I'm trying to strategize. I'm trying to think of something new. I'm trying to write something out. I'm trying to break it down a problem. And I usually do that because the kids are sleeping and I don't have to, to worry about them until about seven o'clock in the morning. Those are probably the ways that I, I really think about staying energized. I also like to play sport. So I, I, I play ice hockey still and I play golf. And so between working out and golfing, that kind of keeps my energy levels up. 
And then, you know, mentally, it's it's really about spending and finding that quiet time or that quiet place. And for me, like I said, it's between 5 a.m. and 6.30 in the morning and using that time to think. Sometimes thinking is meditative and you're just kind of staring at a wall and trying to do it in your head. Oftentimes, it's breaking down a problem in writing or it's, you know, reading something that's tangential to what you're trying to think about to help you think about it more clearly. That time is just, is oftentimes seen as a burden. And for me, it really just energizes me because I feel like I'm well thought out and I have a little bit more of an opinion. And I feel like back to our central theme here of sweating the details, it gives me that ability to to kind of think about some of those details that maybe I didn't get a chance to think about when you know there were 50 million things going on during the day. I think I'm yet to come across, say, someone who's reached some level of great success that doesn't have an early start to their day. I mean, 4.45 is no joke, uh, and so kudos to you. I thought I started early, typically about half five, but you, uh, you take the biscuit on that one. But it's great to hear more about your routine, right? And it sounds like everything that you do has really been optimized and educated in some way, every, every micro decision is there for a reason. And I think that's one of the broader takeaways from this conversation. Uh, we certainly know it's the sweating the details and really being thoughtful about every micro decision to optimize yourself, to be able to perform and sustain yourself over time. As we move into the the, the last few questions here, Chayton, and I, I want to talk a bit more about just the premise of winning business and whether there's been any core principles for you for sales leaders or sellers alike that you found have been staple when it comes to winning business, whether it's methodologies, talk tracks, ways of interacting with customers, any core principles that really stand out for you? Look, there are many sales methodologies that I think that they're all pretty applicable, whether it's spin selling where you're breaking down the situation, problem, implication, need payoff, or whether you're using medic or med pick. These are sales processes or fundamentals that I think really do help quite a bit in trying to drive a process that will eventually result in a sale and give you a higher probability of success by doing that. If there are more than that, I think, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it's less about the process that you follow or playbook that you have and more really about just the tenacity of the seller and making sure that they follow whatever process they feel or playbook that they feel um, in winning business, but they just follow it religiously and they are consistent. The way to win business is to be consistent, both in our responses to questions, um, the way that we address a, a customer, an email, all the way to the voicemails that you leave, to the presentations, and being consistent with the way that we think about opportunities and not sandbag one way or the other, but, but provide that level of, of consistency and, and and say, yep, this is a million dollar deal and I can guarantee that I've qualified it correctly and, and therefore we're going to forecast it that way all the way down to, like you said, sending an email and making sure that we sign off that email correctly almost always the same way or we provide the technical support the exact same way because that's when you start to see the repetitiveness of sales actually creates better execution in my opinion. You mentioned a million dollar deal and, uh, you know, over your tenured career, I'd love to know if there's either a deal or an investment, even a conversation 
that you've had with someone where there's something that stands out about that particular interaction and some form of key takeaway. Just talk to us about some form of lesson learned or key takeaway that you think is worth sharing with a wider audience. I think it is, again, back to our central theme of sweating the details. There's been a couple instances of um, deals in which that I have learned the hard way in which that I didn't really understand the economic model and the contract well enough in which that I ended up putting the company in a difficult position. So without naming names of companies or, or, or specific deals, my biggest takeaway here is, you know, in order to be really great at your job, you need to understand the details. And when you are, those details translate to contract value, you learn very quickly that, oh, the clause around how you're going to collect money and the credits they're going to get and the SLA credits and all of this stuff, when you look at it in totality, the deal may not be as great of a deal as you think. And I think sometimes in today's world, salespeople forget about that sort of broader view and including myself, I've made the mistake a few times where I didn't quite understand that contractual clause about how are they going to get out of the, the contract. You know, understanding and defining indemnification is one thing, and that's oftentimes you can leave lawyers for some of these some of these concepts, but how you interact together and what a customer's rights are within the contract versus your rights, the more complex the deal, the bigger the deal, when they're in the tens of millions of dollars, it gets very complex. And so my big learning here is uh, you got to sweat the details. You got to really get inside those fundamentals and unpack it and really understand it because more times than not i probably should have been a little bit closer to the brass tacks of what's happening versus allowing someone else to to figure it out for me i, th I think the title for this episode's become pretty clear <laughs> it's certainly something related to sweating the details i um i have one last question for you chayton which is really to to understand from you what's the, the single best piece of advice that you'd give to any sales leader that's listening right now to help them to up-level in their career? I think the best advice that I uh, ever received and I still follow to this day is just be persistent. Persistent, honest, and humble. You just have to follow those three principles. Like You cannot be dishonest in your approach uh, and how you approach a problem with dishonest with yourself, but also with your team members or, or your managers. Like you just have to be transparent and honest at all times. And if you marry that with persistence and never giving up, that usually leads to a great outcome. And if you are humble in your approach in those two areas, it leads to great outcomes. And so I've tried to consistently look at my career and there are times in which that I have felt that I could have been more humble or I didn't give it my all. And those were always the ones I reflect back on and said, man, the outcome wasn't that great. It would have been much better if I had just been honest with myself that I didn't put in the work and I wasn't persistent enough or I didn't make that extra phone call or I didn't spend enough time on that presentation or, you know, hey, look, at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops with me and, and uh, I let it slide. Like sometimes it's just, you know, human mistakes happen. And so when you're persistent, honest and humble and you try to uh, emote those, those qualities at all times, I think usually it leads to great outcomes. 
Don't leave anything on the table, right? Put it all out there on the field. Love it. Great way to wrap. Have you enjoyed being on? Oh, I've loved it. Thanks, Alex, for having me on. Awesome. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. To anyone out there listening, I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Please be sure to take a moment to share it with a colleague, share it with a friend, engage with it, and make sure you can help increase the reach of the On Target podcast. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.